be here, good to be back. You know, I'm always encouraged when I will preach at a place and then they'll ask me to come back. So that has to be a positive sign. Um, if you would turn your Bibles to the book of John, John chapter 20. You know, in the early church, there were the earliest Christian greeting at Easter was not Happy Easter. I know that's a surprise. Nor was it, here comes Peter Cottontail. Nor was it in your Easter bonnet with all the frills upon it. The earliest, what we understand, Christian greeting at Easter goes something like this. They would, the first would initiate and they would say, he is risen. And then the person that would meet them or greet them would say, he is risen indeed. So let's try that, okay? He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's do it one more time. He is risen Amen, amen. You got John chapter 20 yet? Are you there? Let me get my glasses. That would be helpful. Yeah, okay. John 20, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 10 this morning. Stand with me as we read the Word of God. You follow on silence, I'm reading light. I'm reading from the NASB, so if it reads a little bit different, if you have... Uh, ESV or NIV or KJV or NKJV or uh, TMV or whatever you have, uh, they're close enough. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb. And while it was still dark and saw the tomb, saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciples whom, and the other disciple whom Jesus loved. And said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. And we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth. And they were going to the tomb. Watch these words. And the two were running together. And the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter. And came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Simon Peter also came, following him, and he entered the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place or folded up in a place by itself. So the other disciple which is John, who had come first to the tomb, then also entered, and he saw, and he, what does your Bible say? He believed. For as yet, they did not understand the Scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for the morning and for the wonderful privilege to preach the gospel today on this glorious Sunday. I pray that, Lord, our hearts would be supple and broken and yielded unto you, that your spirit have free and complete access into our heart, into our emotions, into our life, into our thoughts, and that indeed every thought would take, be taken captive into the obedience of Christ. And may we leave this place not simply heard a message, but received a message from you. And that we would go 
different from the way that we've come. Changed. Challenged. More devoted, more in love with you than ever. More committed to being faithful witnesses of the gospel. For all this we ask in the name that's above every name. The blessed and worthy name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So often when we come to the resurrection passages, what we found over the years is that there are people who have doubted the resurrection. Are you, are you surprised with that? They're skeptics. When they come to this idea of the empty tomb, well, the, what, how do we explain that away? Or how have we been able to uh, deal with those who doubt whether Jesus rose up from the grave? Well, what I find to be interesting, there are basically three explanations to the skeptical world, or challenges rather, to the resurrection. One is that there's the, what's called the stolen body theory. And that stolen body is, is the idea that, that the Roman soldiers stole the body. They stole the body so that somehow that, that this would not, Jesus would not have died a martyr and this would be a place where they would come back and, and venerate and worship and so they stole the body. However, the, the flaw in that is that when these disciples begin, begin to say, he is risen, what would the soldiers have done? They would have brought the body out and said, aha, here he is. You don't have a Savior that's alive, he's dead. And the other theory is that the disciples, those frightened, fearful, spineless disciples, took on a cohort of Roman soldiers, 600 soldiers, ran them off with their two swords, rolled the stone away, took the body of Jesus, hid it somewhere, and then propagated the story that he's alive. And all of them, all those 11, died a martyr's death. Not one of them at any time said we were lying. Not one of them said we were just fabricating a story. Well, you see the ludicrous nature of such a thing? That's the stolen body. Another theory is that the women went to the wrong tomb. Now, ladies, you know how ridiculous that would be. The idea is that they were under such emotional duress that they, they, were, they, they went to the wrong tomb of all places. And so, if you read the Scriptures, we understand that, that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary watched where he was buried, was very careful to make notes. And so, and also that he was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, who was a well-known, a wealthy person in Jerusalem. And so this cemetery was one of the wealthy and the famous. Everybody knew where this garden tomb was. It was quite notable. And so for them to say that the women went to the wrong tomb, that's almost saying that the women couldn't find something. Guys, when you and I lose something, have you found out that your wife can always find it? Got a witness from some of you? I will go in there, honey, I cannot find my wallet. I can't find my, my watch. And she will go into the very same room I was in. She will look in the same spot I was looking in. And she will bring it out. Can I get an amen from you guys? Amen. Amen. So for some to say that these women couldn't find the tomb, 
It's just plain ludicrous. Amen, girls? Yes. The third theory is what's called the swoon theory. The swoon theory basically is that Jesus really didn't die on the cross after being scourged, after having spikes in his wrists and his, and his feet, having having his side pierced and blood and water ran out, that somehow, miraculously, he just swooned. And he was taken off the cross. Now, you understand that a centurion who was in charge of a cross duty was what we would call today the coroner. His primary responsibility was to make sure that when that guy was taken off the cross, he was graveyard dead. Because if for some reason or the other he took someone off the cross and they weren't dead, guess what? In just a few hours, he would be. Because it was his job. And then his detachment of soldiers were equally responsible to make sure that the body was dead when they put it in the tomb. Because you see, they had the responsibility of that body to make sure that this prisoner did not escape. Well, so let's go on with the ludicrous theory. So they, they take his body, they wrap him in over 100 pounds of spices that would set up after a couple of days. They put him in the tomb. The coolness of the tomb reinvigorates him. He, he comes up out of the grave. He breaks off the grave clothes rolls a one-ton stone out of the way, scares off a cohort of Roman soldiers, and walks around Jerusalem on nail-pierced feet. It'd take more faith to believe that than really what happened. Amen? But this morning, I'm not trying to convince the skeptics. What is interesting in this story is that there were three that came to the tomb. Of those three, two of them were devoted followers of Christ and they struggled to believe. On an Easter Sunday morning, in a crowd of those who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, I submit to you that there are those among us who struggle and who doubt even though you belong to the group of those who follow. Jesus Christ. I believe that those this morning that are full of doubt. There are those who are still struggling. So I want to talk this morning about those devoted people who are followers of Christ and yet struggled, yet eventually, ultimately, they would believe. But there was a process that had to be worked through before they would actually come to that full understanding that Jesus is alive. Let's talk about Mary Magdalene for first. First. The scripture points out in all four gospels that the very first witness of the resurrection or the empty tomb was Mary Magdalene. What do we know about Mary Magdalene? Well, Mary was, was the first time that we find out about her is that the scriptures notes that she was one out of whom Jesus cast seven demons. You know the story in Luke chapter 8, verse 2. Don't look there right now. So that she had been highly demonized, and when you have someone who's at not one but seven demons, it means they were at a level of, of depravity. They were involved in not only um, demonism but probably occultism, prostitution. She was as 
as low as it gets, and that one day she met Jesus. And she, she looked at him, and he looked at her, and he says, demons, be gone. And she was amazingly transformed. The Bible makes it clear that after that, she became a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. So devoted was she in her following of Christ is that the Bible makes it clear in John chapter 19 that when Jesus was dying on the cross, where was Mary Magdalene? She was there, right there. And then when they took, and when they took him off the cross, they buried him. She was at the tomb. She watched him. And I love <clears throat> reading the gospel accounts and the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It says she was watching them bury, watching them put him in the tomb. And then early on Easter morn, who was the first one there? Peter, John, Philip, Andrew, Bartholomew, Thomas, who? Mary Magdalene. She was going there for the express purpose to possibly anoint the body of Jesus, to show her love. But when she arrived, she found quite a different story. She was a, a devoted follower, and yet the reality is that, how did she respond? Well, are you in verse, two, verse 1? She saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. Look at verse 2, the very last part. They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, <clears throat> and we do not know where they have laid him. Who is they? We don't know who they is. But we understand that her first response <clears throat> as a devoted follower of Christ was that his body had not been resurrected, but it had been what? Stolen. <clears throat> now, do you think she had heard at any time in her life under the ministry of Christ that Jesus had said that he would die but be raised on the third day? Yes, I do agree with that. Sixteen times in the gospel, Jesus told his disciples and all those that followed that the Son of Man will be rejected, he will be crucified, he will be buried, but he will be raised on the third day. Surely she heard it. But when she saw the evidence, her first response was, somebody stole the body. Fast forward just a little bit, just a few hours later, she's back at the graveside. She's in the garden. <clears throat> Jesus walks up to her speaks to her, and she doesn't even recognize him. She is still confused. You still got your Bible open? John 20, verse 16. <clears throat> Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned to him in Hebrew and said, Rabboni, which means teacher, Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me, for I have not ascended to the, to the Father. But to go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and to your Father, my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, that he has said these things to her. <clears throat> she did believe. Well, why do you think she didn't believe at first? In my very humble but accurate opinion, I believe that the real issue with Mary was that she was so overcome with grief. She struggled 
with belief. She has seen in Christ, her life had been radically transformed. He treated her like no other man. He treated her with real love and real respect and real value. Her life had purpose and meaning. And now with him around, she felt like that her life would be forever different, forever changed. And then suddenly he's taken out of her life. And with his death, she said, my life will never have purpose and meaning again. You know, sometimes we come to Easter Sunday and Easter is a reminder of death. It's a reminder of loss. You may have lost someone this year. You may this morning be here in this wonderful place of fellowship and worship. And yet your heart is full of grief. Full of loss. Full of disappointment. Full of despair. But you understand that Easter is about not death, but hello. It's not about death, it's about life. It's not about despair, it's about hope. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life, and he that believeth on me, though he die, yet he will live. I got good news this morning. Jesus is alive. And whatever you've been through, and whatever grief, whatever grief that may envelop your heart this morning, whatever sorrows that you may know, I will tell you this, that the resurrection message is one of life and one of hope. And because we know Christ, we have every reason in the world for our heart to be full of joy and celebration and thanksgiving. Not just today, but for us who know Jesus, every day is Resurrection Sunday, every day. Jesus says, as I live, even so shall you live. Mary was so full of grief, she struggled with belief. And then there's another person here. His name is Peter. <clears throat> now, we know anything about Peter, don't we? You know what Peter's, Peter's real problem was? He was a slow runner. Well, notice, notice, please. You need to see this. So Peter and the other disciples went forth, and they were going to the tomb, and the two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead of Peter, faster than Peter, and came to, to the tomb first. Well, uh, I don't know whether he was slow because he was old or slow because there was some reluctance even in his gait. And so when he got to the tomb, <clears throat> don't you love the story? John gets there, he runs it, and from my understanding, I think most scholars would agree that, that John was probably about 10 years younger than Peter. He was a much younger man, so that may explain he had younger legs. He had more energy, so he raced down there. He was excited. He gets to the tomb, and then he stops. He looks in. Takes a long stare. Peter, isn't it just like him? He just impetuously barges right into the tomb. He does careful introspection of all the details are there. If you notice, please, it almost sounds like they did inventory to see if everything was there. He looks around, but the scripture doesn't say he believed. Have you noticed that? 
It says he just looked around. <clears throat> Will there be something in Peter's life right now that may be challenging his belief or causing him to struggle perhaps? Everything just went smoothly and swimmingly the last few days. Would you agree? Now, Peter was a devoted follower of Jesus Christ as well. In fact, he has the highest statement of the messianic mission and nature than any other person in the New Testament. When he says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. He was the leader of the group. And when Jesus told them that one of them would betray one of them would deny. Peter said, you got it all wrong. I would never deny you. Peter, me deny you? Lord. Well, guess what happened? Later on that very night, after the arrest in the courtyard of the high priest, Peter doesn't deny the Lord just once, but Three times. He made a fool of himself. He made a fool of himself in front of his, of his fellow disciples. Among those that were around that charcoal fire, they thought, what a, what a loser. But Luke's record records even the most telling event. When the cock crowed, the scripture says, Jesus turned. See, Jesus was fully aware of where Peter was the whole time. And whatever you're going through, he's still fully aware of all that you're going through. When he denied the Lord for the third time, the scripture says in Luke's gospel that he turned and looked at Peter. And their eyes met. And Peter ran out and wept bitterly. Do you not think that when the word came to them that, that, that Jesus was alive or that the tomb was empty or the stone was rolled away, do you not think that there was a, a flurry of feelings that were going through Peter at that point? He was, there was some ambivalence. Would you not agree with that? Can I get just a nod from you here? Yes. <clears throat> because he felt like a loser, a failure. He had blown it. But he wouldn't stay there. In fact, if you will turn over to chapter 21, turn to chapter 21. He sees Christ that night in the upper room. <clears throat> 21.15 says, and you know the story? So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my lambs. You know the story. Three times Jesus says, I'm not going to go into the Greek here on this, but the point is he says, do you love me? Well, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Do you love me? Well, yes, Lord, you know I really like you, the, tent, the idea. And then finally Jesus says, do you really like me? Well, Lord, you, you know I like you. He said, 
feed my sheep. The Lord restored Peter eventually, eventually, 50 days later at Pentecost. Who of all people is the preacher of record? The loser. The failure. Let me tell you what. Sometimes we come to Easter Sunday morning and some of us are full of guilt because we failed. Is there one among us who's not failed the Lord this year? Anybody just done it right? Been a witness at every situation? Always got it right? Or would you agree with me and admit with me that you failed the Lord at least once this year already? Can, can I get a witness? Okay. Come on now. If you're not, if, raise your hand. Either you're a loser or a liar. One or the other right now. So let's try this one more time. How many of us have failed the Lord in one capacity or the other at least once this year already? Thank you, losers. Thank you. <clears throat> We're all in that condition. We have all failed the Lord at one time or the other. Not been the witness we ought to have or said something that we should not have said or should have spoken and we didn't speak up. We let him down with our family, in our work, in our church. We have failed him. Aren't you glad that failure is not final for the follower of Jesus Christ? And when we have done some heinous things, he is a God of grace and a God of glory. And there is restoration and reconciliation for all of us. Easter is a glorious message of restoration. And even when we disappoint him, and when we disappoint ourselves and our kids and our grandkids and our spouses, God is a God full of grace who knows us better than anybody and loves us more than anybody. Wonderful, the matchless grace of Christ. Well, those were the, you've got Mary, she would work through her grief. She would come to that point of finding that her life is purpose and that she could go on and press on with her life. And she would. And Peter would be restored to a place of usefulness again. But there's one other guy. And his name is John. Now, don't we love the part? Look at it down in verse 8. 20 verse 8 says, So the other disciple, who had first come to the tomb, then also went. Now realize this. He saw everything that Mary Magdalene saw. He saw everything that Peter saw. And yet we entered the tomb. What does the scripture say? He what? He saw and he believed. How can that be? One was full of grief, one full of guilt, but John was full of grace. Now, let me tell you what happened. You got your Bible open. John is the only disciple that we know that was there at the cross, that's identified. 
How do we know that? Because the Bible says that he was, okay? Are you there? John chapter 19, look please. Verse 26, it said, when John saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, who's that? John. <clears throat> there was an exchange there. I don't believe that we can understand the resurrection. And it's, it's impossible to be saved solely believing on the resurrection without hearing about and understanding the crucifixion. Because that is the gospel. The gospel is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried. And that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. We don't get just one. We don't just believe in the cross. We believe in the cross and the resurrection. We don't just believe in the resurrection. We must also believe in the cross. John was there at the cross. Look at verse 28. <clears throat> John was a witness to the cross. He says, and after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, to fulfill the scripture, he said, I am thirsty. I thirst. Look at me. Physical or spiritual? Now, indeed, after all he had been through with the scourging and, and the loss of blood, he could have what we would know today, the doctors would call it hypovolemic shock. He would involuntarily crave liquids, fluids, because he had lost so much. But do you wonder, also understand that Jesus in the book of John describes man's desire to know God is thirst. Well, Psalmist says, as the deer panteth for the water, brook, so does my soul thirst after thee. Jesus speaking to the woman at the well, and she said, he says, in the day that you drink thereof, you will never thirst. Now, was he talking physical or spiritual? Spiritual? And then on that great day in John chapter 7, he says, If any man thirst, let him come unto me, and out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. And so this idea of thirst, I believe, was not so much the physical, but the spiritual. For at this point on the cross, it was between 12 and 3, it was the point where the darkness now was upon the cross and covering it. Jesus was taking the role of lost humanity. He was bearing our curse. He was taking our shame. He was taking the wrath of God upon himself on Calvary. He became, he became sin for us. Do we understand that when Jesus died on the cross, when Jesus was on the cross, he was taking the place of lost humanity. He knows what it's like to be lost. And at that point, as the Father turned away and the fellowship that he had known from time and eternity, he took that place, he took the curse, he took the wrath upon himself. 
And the parallel passage in Matthew and Mark at that point, I believe it goes something like this. He said, I thirst. And then he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When Christ died, he took my hell that I would never have to take. He took the separation that you and I will know, never have to know. Hallelujah. Amen. What a Savior that we have. He took our disgrace, our shame, our sin, our curse, our hell, our loss, our all. Looking unto, looking unto Jesus, the author, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus died for me. Jesus died for you. Those are not trite words. We sing them, but they're weighty and significant. John heard him say, I thirst. And then, notice please, verse 30. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the spirit. Great, great word here. John was there. He records it. It is finished. The, the original Greek word there is the word tetelestai. It was used as a marketplace term that when someone paid a bill out, it was stamped with this, tetelestai, which means it, not just, it was not just paid up, it was paid out. There's a difference. And when it was paid out, it meant that it was final, it was finished, there was no need for that ever to be revisited because it was fully vented, fully taken care of, fully, sufficiently paid out. Now, generally when a guy dies on the cross, those are his, not his last words. <laughs> those were words of not only victory but finality and completion. It's finished. Listen to me. When Christ died for us, our sins were not just paid up to date. They were paid out forever. You hear some preach today a message that goes something like this. You know, you need to trust Christ, and yes, he died for you, but you need to, even though he died for you, you need to keep working to make sure that you can keep your salvation, and you've got to be faith plus works. Well, folks, if that's what you preach, then you're not preaching grace. You're preaching something else, and I would call that disgrace. Amen? When Christ died for us, Jesus paid it. There's nothing more to be done. When we trust Christ as Savior, 
when we trust him and, and receive him into our life as our Lord, there's not a thing that we must do to perpetuate what he has already done. It is finished. Every religion in the world goes something like this. It is a do religion. You must do this or do that. You better come to church. We'll take you off the rolls. There's no way you can be saved if you don't do this and you've not done these religious activities, whatever it may be. But Christianity is not a do religion. It's not a D-O religion. It's a D-O-N-E religion. It's been done. Finished. And John was the witness that when Jesus starts something, he finishes it. It's done. And all the Gospels record that at, at that point, Jesus died. You know what I love about that statement in all four of the Gospels when it describes those last, that last moment? The Romans didn't kill him. The cross didn't kill him. He gave his life. He laid it down. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Now, that being said, notice something else. John comes to the grave. He notices some things here. One thing that stands out in my mind is that, is that he, he knew that Jesus was dead. Down Later on it says that blood and water ran out. He was the only of the apostles that was the witness to the burial. How do we know that? Because only John records there's one other character that's named in Scripture that was at the burial. In addition to Joseph of Arimathea and the girls, the ladies. And who was it? The old Irishman, Nick Odemus. A little slow there, you got it. Nicodemus was there. John's only one records that. Why? Because he was there. So as they buried him, look at verse, look at verse 5. When John walks in the tomb, there were a couple things that just stood out in his mind. And stooping and looking in, he saw, notice, what's this word? Linen wrappings. Do you see that? Hello, are you looking at this? 25 says, he saw linen wrappings. Now look at chapter 19, verse 40. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with spices. And so that was something significant. In other words, what happens is that the body was wrapped with these linen wrappings, okay? Look at verse 6. So Simon Peter also came in following him and entered the tomb and he saw the, help me here, linen wrappings. In case we missed it, look at verse 7. 
and the face cloth which had been on his head was not lying with the linen wrappings. Now, please notice it says, and the linen, linen wrappings were lying there. To understand what those words mean is that that was what was encased the body of Christ. So when John walked into the tomb, the first thing that stood out in his mind was that the linen wrappings had collapsed. It was obvious, though the, though the wrappings had not been removed, they had suddenly there had been a body there, and now for some un, inexplicable reason, they were now just lying flat. And so there was a body there, and how, how can a body get out of the linen wrappings without messing up the linen wrappings? Hello? Unless somehow there had been another method of him coming up. Now, do we have anything in the Gospels that's a parallel to that? Yes, we do. Just a few days before that, there had been another one who was raised. Now, don't go there and look right now. But John eleven forty four points out that when Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And he popped up. And they could see him. And Jesus says to them, unwrap the linen wrappings. Get him out of that stuff. He's been resuscitated to life. But they had to unwrap him to get him out. But that's why I understand there's only been one resurrection in Scripture ever. All these others, they were resuscitated. They would come to life, but they would come to life, but they would eventually die again. You think of that. Hello. The widow of Nain's son, Lazarus, Jairus' daughter. But there's only been one who's been put in the grave. And three days later, the wrappings are still there. But he isn't. When John saw that, he went, now wait a minute, wait a minute. There's no way. There's only one explanation for that. But then there's another little detail. Do you see that little detail that stand out in your mind? When you read that, you go, did you have that moment when you go, hmm, well, I had that moment when you just go, hmm, why do they put the details there? Look, please. Are you there? Verse 7 says, but rolled up in a place by itself. Literally has the idea of it was folded up. In other words, the sadarion is what they call it. The covering over the face. In other words, when they wrap them up, they put the shroud on them. They cover their face. And when Lazarus came up from the grave, it says, unwrap him and take off the saldarion. Same word, same thing. Now, do you think when they took that out Lazarus, they just folded it up neatly and put it in the corner there? They went, whoa, praise the Lord. But in John chapter 10, 
Jesus has an interesting statement. Well, let me stop here. This word for napkin was the same word that was used for a handkerchief. But when you would finish a meal or when you would leave a place to signal that you're done with the business, you would fold it up and say, I've completed what I've come here to do. And you put it there. John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. Don't look there right now. You can look up later. Jesus says, I not only will lay my life down, but I will also, help me, I'm going to take it up again. And when John saw the now depressed wrappings and saw not a a mess of an of a tomb, but instead everything was organized and everything was in order, and saw that folded up face cloth as though whoever was here left a little signature that says, I've completed what I've come to do. The Bible says, John looked at it. He saw it. Can you imagine? He's, he was by the cross. He heard it all. And now he's looking at all this evidence. And he went, he's alive. <laughs> Jesus is alive. Let me ask you this. Has there been that point in your life where you know with certainty that Jesus Christ lives? Not because you just simply are repeating what you've always heard, but there has been a point in time in your life where you realize that you're a sinner and you need a Savior. And Christ died for you. Christ died for me. And by faith, and not only believing that he died for you, but Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you done that? Has that taken place in your life? Let's pray. Heads bowed, eyes closed. In a time of reflection, what's filling your heart this morning? Grief, loss, the sorrows of the world. Concerned about your future. Not just tomorrow, but eternity. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. 
And for those who believe on him will have life and life forever. Would you cry out unto Christ today? Would you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today? Won't you look? Won't you see? Won't you simply believe today? Or maybe you look at your life and you feel like there have been more failures than successes. Maybe in relationships, maybe in your work, I feel like a loser. All of us are. But in Jesus, it is not loss, it is gain. Paul says, For I am crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live, but the life I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. There's forgiveness today. Washed with his own blood. Poured out for the sins of many. For you. For me. Father, we pray that your will be done today. We trust you. We thank you for the wonderful Savior that you are. That you loved us when we didn't deserve loving. You demonstrated your love for us while we were yet sinners. You died for us. May, Lord, as you speak to hearts this morning, that those who are lost would trust you this morning and know what it means to be saved. Those who follow you and who do know you, who are far away, who have drifted because of issues, situations in their life, that this morning, on this Easter Sunday, they'd come back home. They would be restored, forgiven, with a life of purpose again. Father, have your way. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.